Welcome to Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera, and this is episode 12. Today we'll be looking at an important section of the galaxy, one used as the setting for the novel Risk Analysis and mentioned throughout Star Drifter as a whole, namely corporate space. All company, yet all sovereign state, the Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation is both a tight association of huge business entities and a collection of star systems governed under a single flag, united as one with pride, patriotism, and a rather unusual version of social capitalism. A place with a fluid yet inescapable social pecking order and general level of technology and fiscal reach beyond most others, corporate space is a rich, modern, and highly advanced supernation. Yet behind all that glitter, chrome, and glass, dark ambitions, dangerous secrets, and even institutionalized disenfranchisement can be found. If you look closely enough, or even at all, which many don't. But hey, we're not them, so why not sit, relax, and have a listen as we take a little walk on the corporate side. Before we get into the main course, let's refresh ourselves with an aperitif of Star Drifter news and updates. First, the latest novel in progress, All He Surveys, is moving along, albeit not as quickly as I'd prefer. I'm into the second draft and have been for a while. I've decided that I need to rewrite the ending a bit, so we'll still be in draft two yet for the immediate future. After that, I expect the book to progress at a quicker pace. You've heard me say that before, so I'd advise skepticism. The next Star Drifter short story should be out before the end of the year. That's the goal, anyway. Either way, it'll be worth waiting for, so get yourself ready for the retro-future adventure of The Prince of Ramador. Now then, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game is currently at version 0.04.3. Still early days, it's sporting a spiffy new cover by the mad artistic genius Ignatz. If you have a hankering to run around an Ejok stomping grounds and have your own adventures, I suggest you run on over to davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll always find a link to the latest version. In case you haven't heard yet, I'm currently publishing a limited series blog slash newsletter called Tottenberg, which is specifically about the design and creation of the cover art for the role-playing game. Now, that might sound quite niche, and I suppose that it is, but it's also one of the most exciting collaborative projects of which I've been a participant. Sign up now if you haven't already and read the blow-by-blow progress of that image, and most especially of the creation of a specific class of starship. You'll find design concepts, 
background info on the Star Drifter universe, and speculation on the fictional limitations that reality might impose upon shipbuilders, to say nothing of the real-life limitations imposed upon us and how we got around them. If you're a creator of any kind, or if you're looking to become involved in a collaborative or team effort stretched out over the internet, you will love this. Iterative illustrations, design concepts, and the requirements of quality graphics. It's free to subscribe. You'll get a candid look into the nuts and bolts of Star Drifter as a series and as a concept of the future. Again, this is a limited series covering the emails back and forth between Ignatz and me, and it will end with the final illustration. Sign up now, either at my website or over at stardrifter.substack.com and see what it took to bring imagination to life. Speaking of newsletters, my previous one, High Desert, has been replaced by the new, improved Star Drifter newsletter. Now, don't be confused. This isn't the same as Tottenberg, even though it goes out over the same feed. Star Drifter, the newsletter, will cover news, updates, and articles on various in-universe topics, as well as chatter about the creation process and maybe a few personal challenges I've met along the way. Same feed as with Tottenberg. Subscribe to one, you get both. The difference being that when Tottenberg runs its course, the Star Drifter newsletter will continue on. Get the inside track. Sign up now. And that's all the latest, except that the newly invigorated goal for this podcast will be monthly releases. Yeah, buddy, more Voice from the Void coming at you. Okay, I'm probably lying again, but maybe I'm not. You should subscribe to the feed and find out for yourself. DavidCollinsRivera.com or StarDrifter.Podbean.com. A single feed for all your Star Drifter audio needs. The Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation, also known as Moneyland, The Handshake, or simply Corporate Space, is the most recent political entity to be widely recognized as a supernation. That is, as a single overarching government acting as a facilitator and coordinator for the interactionable laws and policies of a collection of smaller political entities. In this case, corporate entities controlling particular star systems and assets in space and the people who live there. In modern times, here in the 21st century, the European Union may be seen as being vaguely similar in structure and purpose, though it is not in any way a direct ancestor of this supernation. Corporate space is made up of a huge number of large incorporated bodies, some of which are owned wholly or in part by other member companies. Corporations such as Alar Omco, specializing in space station design and construction, Zele Interstellar, which does much the same, and Sagacious Financial Services, an independent company which stretches across the borders of the other supernations, overseeing and implementing the Credit Unit of Exchange System, or Q, which has become the default currency throughout much of space and was featured in a previous episode of this podcast, one that also touched on the origins of corporate space, content of which I won't be repeating here. Check out Voice from the Void 8, Money, in this same feed for those specifics. 
A territorial president is elected by the Montero Board of Directors from the ranks of executives of the member corporations. The board members, in turn, are voted on by the administrators of these corporations. It should be noted that the average citizen of corporate space has no say in these elections. Instead, so-called employee associations, or just SOCIs, acting much like guilds or trade unions elsewhere, are an integral part of the fabric of the nation. It's difficult to succeed within individual boards or executive branches of companies or to move up from there to Montero governance positions in aggregate without the support and endorsement of the local SOCIs. It's a check and balance put in place at the genesis of corporate space as an indirect form of representation for the common employees, or uh, that is, citizens of the nation. It has proven to be somewhat flawed in this regard, but then so are all the others across the galaxy. Human ingenuity, coupled with greed and self-aggrandizement, always finds a way to game the system. Corporate space may be the socialist's nightmare come to life, but the fact is, the average living standard of its citizens is higher than those of any other supernation. We're not talking about the lap of luxury, but rather a vast, protected middle class. I say protected because rising in rank in moneyland, a concept I'll address in a moment, is intentionally difficult and increasingly so as you go along. The upper classes are almost solely composed of executives within local corporations and wealthy expats from foreign nations, while the lower classes are mostly made up of other foreign nationals of lesser means, the aged, the underaged, the infirm, and the congenitally underemployed. The quality of life of even members of the lower ranks is generally comfortable, with the burden falling upon various citizen-employee benefit programs, which act much like social services do in other nations. The lion's share of these programs are paid out through taxation and levies placed upon member companies and the middle class as a whole. One more reason said class is given special consideration. Notably, the minority elite citizens of corporate space who are vastly wealthy don't really pay their fair share of tariffs and taxes, which again is much like how it is everywhere else. Now and then, there are movements intended to bring the superprivileged to heel. This kind of discontent generally ends with token compromises and penalties serving to quell the complaints for a while though some movements have been influential and tumultuous, bringing about lasting change, both good and bad. In any large collection of human beings throughout history, or any organization, some people are inevitably more dominant than others. This has taken many structural forms over the years, Within organizations such as the military or the law enforcement divisions of a given nation, it is formalized as rank, Incorporated bodies tend to be as well. You have consultants, contract workers, full and part-time employees, group leaders, supervisors, managers, vice presidents, executive vice presidents, and the leaders who go by a variety of job titles and positions of authority. And above them, at least in theory, you have advisory boards, directors, and stockholders who must be satisfied. 
As a nation, corporate space has implemented a numerical social ranking system as a basic principle of one's humanity. From the moment of conception, yes, before they are born, corporate space citizens have rank. All through their lives, they have rank. Even after death, a person still holds rank in this territory. Foreign nationals are assigned rank upon crossing the border. Persons of unknown identity are assigned temporary rank. Rank defines you. Rank explains you to others. Everyone knows where they and all the people around them fit into the texture of society by virtue of their legal rank. The minimum rank for anyone is zero. The maximum is ten. Parts of rank exist, since it may actually matter in some situations whether someone is of, say, rank 3.2, 5.7, 4.9, etc. There are social clubs for every possible rank and employment category combination, and certain legal benefits and limitations regarding such things as marriage, adoption, and inheritance are based on rank. You have rank as a child, and as you grow and achieve certain educational, employment, experiential, and or technical goals established by the company, your rank increases. If you get demoted by your employer, get convicted of a crime, or agree to confess to one during the arbitration process, or become sidelined by medical or other personal issues, your rank may well decrease. As a Montero citizen, your rank is part of your internationally recognized ident profile, even if it doesn't matter in any other nation. There are many groups of positions in corporate space known as employment categories. The unemployed have categories, even the self-employed have categories, since by law these people are employees of themselves. Categories such as management, security, arbitration, international relations, technical services, scientific research, the arts, and many, many more exist. Often shortened to just a few letters, all people have these categories as part of their statement of rank. A member of the military, for instance, might have the rank of Corporate Security 4.4 or just CPS4 in common reference. A professional dancer might have the rank of Corporate Fine Arts 5.1 or just CFA 5. People working within multiple employment categories might have an adjusted rank within one or another of them, hold two or more ranks, or even have a whole new category created depending upon circumstances and the results of arbitration. In theory, the members of the various rank categories are all equivalent in standing. A soldier of rank 3 is supposed to be the same as a floor sweeper of rank 3, and a self-employed independent asteroid prospector of rank 3. In practice, of course, all sorts of restrictions, limitations, clearances, and circumstances, to say nothing of decimal point rank considerations, can and do come into play, lending color, nuance, and occasional confusion and discontent with the whole ranking system. By and large, though, these elements add understandable detail to the question of pecking order. Arbitration is common when citizens have rank-related grievances, as are other legal actions and entanglements when rank is ignored. 
Arbitration itself is worth noting as it is an enshrined aspect of the legal system. Any dispute between individuals, companies, international organizations, or other entities, including those of a criminal nature, first enter into a state of arbitration at one of a large number of legal levels and specifics. Arbitration often, but does not necessarily have to, involve three parties, one side, the other side, and the Montero Corporation in the middle, ensuring that any agreements made do not conflict with company interests. Rules and laws may be skirted in such negotiations, that is, the spirit rather than the letter of the law may be emphasized, so long as everyone agrees that it's best for all concerned. Precedent is downplayed in favor of expediency and the satisfaction of the parties involved. Consensus, or at least compromise, among the participants must be achieved or else the arbitration is escalated. The particular level that each type of conflict enters into the legal system depends upon the importance, notoriety, or needs of the case. When agreement proves elusive, they move up to higher levels of arbitration that include greater oversight, increased legal assessment, the inclusion of third-party expert advice, and a stricter literal adherence to law and precedent. The final step in the arbitration process is elevated to the court system, usually viewed as the least desirable path for conflict resolution, even if it's unavoidable in some situations. One direct result of this structure is that corporate space has far fewer lawyers, judges, and courts than do the other supernations, and far more trained negotiators. This is handy when business and investment questions come to the fore, as it speeds up the resolution of even large-scale commerce and fiscal conflicts. On the downside, having a policy in place of allowing a somewhat fast and loose application of the law at the lower end of the arbitration process can sometimes leave people and organizations out in the cold. Neither consensus nor compromise should ever be confused with satisfaction. Labor negotiations have been historically challenging in the corporate territory, as the demands of the soces are often at odds with those of member corporation management. Wildcat strikes are not unknown, and some have led to wide-scale work stoppages and even violence. One of these was mentioned in passing in the novel Street Candles, a decade or so before that tale, a terrible fire broke out during company strike-breaking efforts upon the space station Dimar Orbital 4. Nearly 7,000 people lost their lives, only some of whom were involved in the riots. While that is certainly the most shocking example of labor violence in recent memory, it's hardly singular. The arbitration process of corporate space makes such incidents uncommon, even rare, but when they do turn ugly, they can spiral way out of control. Moneyland policies regarding transnational business and trade have been a continual source of friction throughout space. Fast and cheap has been the war cry of manufacturers and investors since time immemorial. Moneyland exploitation of workers that occurs in foreign star systems always benefits corporate space far more than their so-called foreign investment partners.
Montero corporate members source inexpensive labor no matter where it might be found, and this has often left a bitter taste in the mouths of ethnic and union groups across the settled galaxy. Protests, demonstrations, and emergency arbitration are common wherever corporate space holdings and industry can be found in the other territories, some of which inevitably touch off violence and class-based terrorism. On the macro scale, however, these sometimes tumultuous events interrupting and intersecting the lives of millions are just accepted as operating costs in corporate space and aren't even equal to the rounding errors on its territorial quarterly reports. In addition to interpersonal or labor disputes, corporate space arbitration plays an important role in international politics. In the novel Risk Analysis, Ejok eventually finds himself sitting in on a meeting aboard an Alliance warship with some important players of two different supernations while they attempt to piece out what exactly happened during the course of the story and what exactly the Alliance of Independent Nations and the Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation intend to get out of it all going forward. In Ainspace and elsewhere... This sort of thing would be considered emergency security negotiations, international treaty talks, high-level policy agreements, or the like. In corporate space, it's just another face of the arbitration process, baked into the legal system of the nation. As an openly for-profit political body, corporate space acquires partners with and investments in financial, industrial, and service-related opportunities throughout all of settled space. Some outside observers see this as a quiet means of colonization or acquisition played out over a scale of decades or even centuries. Others as a subtle means of self-defense, since many Montero member corporations are major stockholders and investors in various defense contractors across space, putting them into positions of indirect influence within the military-industrial complexes of a large number of foreign powers. And still others see them as being the silent partner of all the national powers of the settled galaxy, ensuring their own stability and providing endless rivulets of profit and trade from everyone, everywhere. No one knows what influence this unique interstellar power will exert upon the other nations of space as humanity balloons outward across the galaxy, though there are plenty of people who will tell you that they do. Perhaps a gigantic, profit-driven entity founded upon the base principle of self-interest will turn out to be a bomb upon the common rage of the human condition, dulling conflict and promoting reasoned acceptance of the needs and desires of others. Or perhaps it will turn out to be a yoke, pulling us all into a dark future of toil and servitude for a fabled elite. Only time and savvy investment can tell. And that's it for this one. I hope this episode brought a bit more context and understanding to the stories and setting. And most of all, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm not a business-minded person myself, so I also hope you'll forgive any leaps in logic I've made. It's all just for fun, after all. 
If you like this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a comment wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps other people find the show. You can contact me, listen to any and all of my Star Drifter audio content, or find links to my newsletters and other podcasts on my website, davidcollinsrivera.com. And if you're feeling especially grateful or inspired, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash davidcollinsrivera. In our next episode, we'll be back in engineering with an in-depth look at what should probably be considered the single indispensable and truly foundational technology of the Star Drifter universe, namely artificial gravity. From normal living in outer space to mass manufacturing and agriculture, from interstellar travel to research and advanced engineering, from newfangled sports to life-saving medical procedures and treatments, the entire course of the human race changed forever when the induced gravity field was first developed. Since then, it's gone on to be applied in countless disparate and unexpected ways, furthering the development and advancement of the human race while it has expanded into the cosmos. But no tool is benign if viewed with cynical eyes, and likewise there have been applications of this incredible technology that might be considered indecorous. Indeed, some have been downright diabolical. We'll take a look at this heavy subject, both the good and the bad, the wondrous and the wicked, next time on Voice from the Void. You have been listening to Voice from the Void, written and read by David Collins Rivera. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode or your ideas for future ones. Feel free to leave a message on my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, or drop me a line at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau, and is available through no copyright sounds at ncs.io wickedwaysid. This podcast discusses fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2021 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>